Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. The story you are about to see is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Ah, Dragnet. Well known to those of you who are boomers, not so much to the Zoomers out there, but a good way to dive into our first topic, uh, getting us into the mindset of catching criminals. Police lineups. We've all seen them on TV, in movies, you know, where a suspect is placed within a group of other people, and uh, those people, those innocents, are called fillers. They have nothing to do with the crime. They're standing against a wall. There's that height measurement behind them, right? Then there's uh, usually a one-way mirror involved. The eyewitness behind that one-way mirror is then asked to identify the suspect among the fillers. Seems pretty simple, pretty fair, right? Good way to find the guilty party. Well, as it turns out, it's much more complicated than that and uh, prone to some errors. My guests for the first part of this program, two Iowa State University researchers, uh, psychologists who study in this field, and they have developed and repeatedly tested a procedure that captures more information from eyewitnesses and improves, improves the accuracy of these lineups in police investigations. Their latest study is published in Psychology, Public Policy, and Law. Um, welcome to Andrew Smith, cognitive psychologist, assistant professor of psychology at Iowa State University. Welcome to our studio, Andrew. Thanks for having me today, Ben. Also uh, with us in the studio with Andrew is uh, Nidia Ayola. Is She is an ISU doctoral candidate in psychology, uh, fourth-year Ph.D. student. Uh, welcome to you, Nidia. Thank you so much. I'd like to start with you, Andrew. Um, to set the scene, uh, before we get into this specific re- research, uh, give us some history on police lineups, because a lot of us don't know much about it past what I just described. We've seen a lot of TV shows and, and films with it. Walk us through the decades of, uh, of, of how this developed and, and then uh, work into the, I guess, the, where errors can, can surface. Sure. Um, well, the actual origin of police lineups um, comes out of the common law legal system where presumably one day um, a judge was unconvinced by uh, a police investigator who brought in someone and said, well, yeah, the witness said it was this person. And um, the uh, common law system not readily accepting that a witness, that that was necessarily reliable evidence because how do we know that the witness wouldn't have picked any person that you showed to to the witness. Um, And so eventually uh, the common law system came to adopt this idea that you need to give us stronger evidence than that. And so could you show us that the witness would pick this individual um, over and above some other person, some other options that you presented them with? And so um, the actual origins of the lineup start not from psychologists, but rather from a legal system. And Psychologists don't really begin studying eyewitness identification in earnest until about the mid to late 1970s is when they start um, 
using experiments in laboratory settings to examine the memory and decision-making processes that are involved um, in lineups and, and specifically looking for ways to improve lineups. And what uh, fascinated the most is that there are, there are sort of two errors that might happen during a lineup. Now, um, one of the things that you mentioned at, at the top here is this idea that um, it's the witness's job to sort of pick the suspect. Well, we mm -hmm. use the term suspect a little bit differently than it's commonly used in the media. In, in the media, the term suspect is used almost interchangeably with um, perpetrator or culprit. Um, but in fact, a lot of suspects turn out to be innocent. Um, one estimate from a recent field study is that approximately 65% of lineups do not include the person who committed the crime in question. Instead, they include an innocent suspect who police pl mistakenly believe might be the culprit. And so um, we use that term suspect uh, a little bit differently because they can be either innocent or guilty. Um, and there's two potential errors that can happen here then. Um, if the suspect is guilty, well, I think most people would intuitively accept that any uh, well-intentioned witness could make an error by um, you know, failing to identify that person because we all readily accept mm -hmm. that people can forget a fact or a previously seen face. Um, but what really caught the attention of the um, cognitive and social psychologists who began studying lineups in the mid to late 1970s is that um, witnesses would sometimes mistakenly identify innocent people. And that is far less intuitive. And so the early work in this area really wanted to understand what was it that was leading witnesses to pick individuals out of lineups whom they had never seen before. Mm -hmm. Andrew, so, um, so I want, I'm interested in what you said a, a moment ago to expand on, on memory. Since you said psychologists really got involved first in the 1970s, I assume before that uh, these witness lineups went in. There was just a, a patented sort of a way <laughs> that uh, police, um, um, the criminal justice uh, systems all across the country went about this. And then in the 1970s, uh, the psychologists got involved. You mentioned memories. What and the mistakes that you can make. You can find someone who is actually guilty, uh, not identified, or someone who is not guilty, who is, uh, you know, identified as, as a suspect by an eyewitness. What is going on? What have we found out about what's going on in our memory that leads to these errors? Well, I think the first thing to sort of keep in mind here is, you know, we all have experience with recognition memory. We all have the experience of recognizing a friend, um, a close family member, a relative, and and most of the time, our memories work pretty well in that respect. We're not walking around and confusing other persons as our spouses or, or, or close friends. Um, but what we need to keep in mind here is that in these eyewitness cases, the witness is typically seeing a stranger commit a crime for under very difficult circumstances. And so they form incomplete memories to begin with. And that makes recognizing these persons in a later identification procedure, which often might be weeks or even months later, um, that makes it a much more difficult task than what we're accustomed to on a day-to-day -day basis. And so um, there are a number of uh, memorial and decision-making processes that, that might lead into uh, making a witness um, uh, potentially make, make a mistake in identification, um, one of those is just having too much of a willingness to choose. 
um, being too readily acceptable to pick someone out of that lineup. But really what most of the research has focused on is not necessarily the error, the, the, the quality of memory per se, because by the time a witness gets to a lineup, the memory, frankly, is what the memory is. Instead, we focused more on understanding what it is about the way the procedures are being done that might exacerbate the types of mistakes we're seeing, and how can we modify those procedures to um, neutralize those decision errors or to prevent decision errors from happening in the first place. So most of the work mm-hmm. is actually sort of accepted. Well, memory has these limitations. How can we develop a better system or world um, to neutralize those errors or prevent them from happening? Right. And as we walk our way up to the present and the present uh, uh, research um, that you and Nydia have been involved in, let, let's let's walk through some of those corrections or tweaks or uh, ways in which the police lineup has has been improved uh, through the through the last few decades. What would you say has been added to uh, perhaps things that we don't recognize when we see it on TV or in film? What 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 is a common way to do it that eliminates some of those errors? Um, well, the first thing to uh, that I want to um, basically explain here is that you know when we see things um, on television, we typically see the live presentation lineup, as you sort of described at the beginning. This sort of idea from uh, Dragnet, or there was a, a famous recent example on the the TV series Brooklyn Nine Nine. Um, that's not typically the way lineups are done in in the field in actual cases, because frankly, oh. it would be hard to to put together a good lineup doing live, you'd have to get multiple people to be physically present in the police station. Instead, they normally put together a photo array. So they um, obtain a photograph of the police suspect, and they surround that photograph with images of five known innocent persons that we refer to as fillers. And how do they know they're innocent? Well, because normally they obtain those uh, photographs from uh, a mug book database, and they're persons who they know were in prison um, during the time in which the crime was committed. And so they, could, they know they could not possibly have committed their offense. So I, I wanted to clarify that, but some of the things that we know is, well, how about we clarify for the witness what their task is? So there has been historically a, a tendency for witnesses to think that, well, of course the right guy is in there, and so my job is just to pick him out. And if you think that's it has, to, it has your to be, task, it, you're saying it, yeah, it has to be one of them. It's like multiple choice, A, B, C, D, exactly. E, F. There, and so it, it has to be one of these, and none of the above is not an option for me. Exactly. So historically, there was some evidence that that's how witnesses encountered a lineup, and there's, um, you know, some evidence that you know back in late 1970s and 1980s. Um, police investigators might have even been instructing witnesses that was the case. And so if you think that's what your task is, you're just going to look for whichever lineup member most closely resembles your memory for the perpetrator and pick that person out because you're inferring that he must be in there. Well, if we know Mm -hmm. that approximately 50 or maybe even 65% of lineups in actual cases don't include the person, then that means at least half the time the correct answer is to say, None of the above. And so the the first real reform that took place around 1981 was this idea that you need to tell witnesses that we don't know if the culprit is present in the lineup or not. And so one valid option is to say none of the above. It's none of these people. 
Okay, you've walked us through several decades of using police lineups, and uh, we'll, we'll get up to this latest research when we return. Andrew Smith of Iowa State University and Nidia Ayala, uh, um, ISU doctoral candidate in psychology. Fascinating area. Um, they've developed and repeatedly tested what they call the simultaneously lineup plus rule out procedure. Their latest study published in Psychology, Public Policy, and Law. Uh, we'll find out uh, what that procedure is that's been tested and how it improves the accuracy of police lineups when we return. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Support for IPR comes from the Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about the Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Uh, in this segment, we're talking with Andrew Smith. He's a cognitive psychologist, assistant professor of psychology at Iowa State University, and ISU doctoral candidate in psychology, Nidia Ayala. Um, and uh, we're learning uh, about a revised method that they've developed for eyewitness lineups in police investigations. And uh, before the break, Andrew, uh, you were walking us through some some remedies, some solutions, improving on police lineup uh, procedures uh, to try to eliminate uh, some of the errors that pop up. Uh, where do we pick up now in that? And and in, I want to spend a few more time minutes on this before we get up to this latest research, so that we have a good context here. What's next? Um, yeah. So there are actually now nine recommendations that have made been made by the Association for Psychological uh, for sorry um, the American Psychological Association. Um, on best practice recommendations based on scientific empirical evidence. And so one is telling um, the witness what their task is and, and making it clear to them that um, the culprit might not be present in the lineup. And so one valid option is to say none of the above. Um, another to, to pick one that's really important and that will um, fit in with uh, um, the research that we've been doing in our, our recent uh, contribution to the literature is um, mm -hmm. collecting a confidence statement immediately after the witness makes an identification decision. Um, confidence has had sort of a, a, a rocky history throughout the scientific literature over the years, and that's because when confidence is expressed at the time of trial, when a witness takes a stand, um, at that point, it's not a good indicator of accuracy. Because by the time a witness gets to trial, they've received all sorts of feedback. And that feedback mostly suggests you made a correct decision. And so every witness who makes it to trial is ultimately confident by the time of trial in their identification decision. In fact, there's been approximately 370 known wrongful convictions in this country. About 70% of them um, were caused by mistaken identification. And we know in every single one of those cases, the witness was confident at the time of trial. But what we also know is that those witnesses, the most of them, those for whom we can obtain the records, we know they were not confident at the time of the initial identification decision. 
before they had received feedback um, suggesting whether they had made a correct decision or not. And so we know that if we get confidence immediately after the identification decision, we know from dozens and dozens of lab studies, Mm -hmm. from field studies, that that is very useful for distinguishing between likely accurate and likely inaccurate identification decisions. Witnesses who are highly confident at the time of the identification uh, decision um, from a a good science-based best practice lineup, they are highly likely to be accurate. And witnesses who are low in confidence, um, who don't have a lot of faith in the identification decision they've made, um, their their accuracy is uh, much less low, much lower. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that is that you're telling me that's a good jumping off point to get into the your your current research, your current study. I don't know if this is a good, a good point for Nydia to to jump in here too about so, sort of you've set the scene and, and uh, talk about. The study that you did uh, first, uh, um, w- uh, what you were looking for, what uh, what did you have your sights set on as a goal here? Right. So as Andrew mentioned, over 45 years of research has really been focused on how can we improve lineups. But mainly that research has focused on how can we reduce the incidence of false identifications or misidentifications of innocent persons. The focus really hasn't been on how can we use lineups to rule out innocent people from police suspicion. Um, So for years, uh, the research has really not touched on that aspect of how lineups can be used to clear innocent people from police suspicion. Um, And from there, we started thinking about, well, why is that? Why are police lineups less useful for clearing innocent suspects from police suspicion. And uh, we came to the conclusion that the way that lineups are conducted nowadays are are flawed, essentially. Uh, They're not capable, really, of ruling out innocent people. Um, And so we developed this new procedure. Yes. Yeah, Nidia, can you can you quantify that when you say flawed? Of course, sometimes they are very accurate and they do have uh, the criminal um, identified here. Flawed to what degree? Uh, that is exactly. unacceptable. I mean, yeah, go that, ahead. That's a great question. Yeah. So essentially, um, when an eyewitness is presented with a lineup, they they have one of three decisions to make. Um, they're tasked with identifying the culprit if that person is present. And if not, rejecting the lineup. And as we mentioned before, there are there are also fillers involved in that lineup. So the eyewitness could identify a the, the suspect, but they could also identify a filler, which we know is a mistaken identification of an innocent person. They could also reject the lineup. Now, when an eyewitness identifies a filler, that doesn't give police any information about their suspect, right? So if you put yourself in the position of a police investigator, they're really just interested in how likely is it that my suspect is guilty, is the culprit. And they use Mm -hmm. the witness's confidence as a proxy for that, right? How much weight can they put on this identification decision based on their confidence? But when they identify a filler in approximately... Sorry, in approximately 25% of cases, witnesses identify fillers. And in those cases, we don't get any information about the police suspect. 
we're missing out on information. And so in that way, police lineups are flawed. Yeah. And so the, the, the investigator would typically then, if a filler is identified, an innocent person who couldn't have done this crime is identified by the eyewitness, the investigator you, does what with it? Just tosses that aside, and that's just zero added information. Well, yeah, they they could do multiple things with that information, but for one, um, they may just move on to the next witness. Um, uh, but really, the the simple solution that we're proposing with the rule out procedure is just to ask the witness specifically about the suspect, right? And that would be yeah. a much more streamlined way uh, for police to approach their identification decision. And I don't know, Andrew, if you have anything to add. Yeah, yeah we have so about we have I about think... ten minutes. I just wanted we have about ten minutes left. So this is this is fascinating. So walk us up to this rule out procedure and, and and walk us through the way it works and why it works. So just to, to qualify a couple of things that Nydia mentioned here, I think the first thing that we need to appreciate is what the lineup's intended to do. This is not intended in and of itself to test the witness's memory. A lineup is, an, is a diagnostic test, and it's intended to test the police investigator's hypothesis that the suspect is the culprit, right? That, and we're using witness's memory to inform on the likelihood that the suspect is the culprit. Well, we're concerned with both being able to detect when that person is guilty and when that person's innocent. So one familiar way to think about this that's probably uh, very familiar to most uh, listeners is think about a COVID test. When you take a COVID test, you're not only interested in its potential to show you that you're COVID positive. You're also interested in its potential to show you that you're COVID negative. And the lineup should be working functionally the same way. And in fact, when a witness picks out the suspect, police learn two things about that person. They learn that he provides a better match to the witness's memory than do any of the other lineup members. And then confidence provides them more nuanced information about how strongly that person matches the witness's memory for the culprit. And that's going to be a very good proxy for estimating the likelihood that that person is guilty. But when a witness mm -hmm. picks out a filler, we don't learn uh, whether the suspect provides uh, the strongest or the weakest match, or, sorry, or the second strongest or the weakest matched memory of the whole group. And confidence doesn't tell us about the likelihood that person's guilty. And even when a witness rejects the lineup, their confidence does not do a good job of scaling the likelihood that the suspect is innocent or guilty. Um, so essentially, when we end up with those outcomes, we just all we learn is that the witness said, well, it's none of these people. And, um, you know, consider an example where they say it's none of these people, but I'm not really confident. Well, why is that person not confident? Maybe they're not confident because the person in position two looked sort of familiar. But maybe number two turned out to be a filler, someone who police knew was innocent. And maybe if instead they had said, what about person number four? Because number four, unbeknownst to the witness, was the actual suspect. And what if the witness would have been able to say, no, absolutely not that guy. So the way lineups are currently being done is they're not extracting all of the potentially useful information that exists in the witness's memory. And so what we've proposed here is lineups, when they follow best practices, are, are pretty good for being able to detect when you have the right guy in there but we're also concerned with clearing innocent people. 
And so what we should do is use a lineup as it's currently done, get your identification decision, get an initial confidence statement, but then afterwards, show the witness the lineup one more time and ask the witness to indicate for each person they did not initially identify, how certain are you that this person is not the culprit? And what that does is it ensures that no matter who the witness initially picked out of the lineup, or no matter if they rejected, we always have information that's specific to the police suspect. We're always going to have information that directly informs on the probability that the suspect is guilty or innocent. And that's information so we're it's, currently it's, not getting. Yeah, so it's, so it's a, you, you get a much more nuanced answers, answers from the uh, eyewitnesses by just keeping the procedure more or less as it has been, but then tacking on these, and I understand there are six confidence questions uh, onto the end of the procedure. Uh, what are the confidence questions? Um, so tip, typically we would just ask the witness to indicate for each person, each of the lineup members who they did not initially identify, how sure are you that that is not the person who you saw commit mm -hmm. the crime? That's all we're asking them, and they can either use a numeric scale or they could express in their own words what that certainty is. And what we're finding is when you tack on these six additional questions and you make use of the confidence rating that they specifically attach to the police suspect, is this is drastically mm -hmm. increasing the potential to detect when the suspect in the lineup is innocent. Yeah. I wonder, what's the origin of, of six? They're called a six-pack, right? How do we arrive at six? Is, is that the best number? <laughs> is it always six? Um, you know, that's a good question. There is certainly um, some variability. Um, certainly at a global level, there's a lot of variability. Um, in Canada, they tend to use nine-packs. In the UK, they use ten-packs. Um, here, six is, is the most common, but some jurisdictions use five. Some might use a few more. Um, really, what you just want is to have some solid number of fillers in there, enough that if the witness does pick the suspect, it would give you some confidence that they're not just wagering a guess here. This person is rising above some threshold where they're expressing a preference for them rather than all of the other options we provided them with. Yeah. So uh, what, what are your hopes for this latest study um, for any real-world change uh, it might bring? Uh, well, our hopes at this point are, we're, we're, well, one, you know, the scientific process never finishes, and so we have lots of additional questions to explore. But our hope right now is to start showcasing um, the benefits of these additional questions to stakeholders and to see if we can uh, begin implementing change. Um, one of the things that's really important here that, that Nidia often speaks to is that really we're not asking for wholesale change here. This is very easy to implement. It's six very simple questions that can be tacked on to what police are already doing, and it can get them a lot more information, which is going to, one, clear innocent people more quickly, which is obviously a benefit to them, but it's also going to increase um, efficiency of criminal investigations because the quicker police can detect that they have the wrong guy, that they're honing in on the wrong person, the more quickly they can reallocate their resources to looking for the right guy. Yeah. Has there been reaction at all? I, mean, I don't know how fast uh, the criminal justice system changes procedures like this or how open it is to academic studies like this, but uh, has there been any reaction to this study and positive reaction? Uh, we have not had much. It's, it, it's going to, we've, 
this, in fairness, this is um, these are recent developments that we. It's only been mm -hmm. about three years in the making this procedure, but it's going to take work from us and and using our our network and our contacts to um, spread the news and to share this information with others and to find those um, open individuals who are willing to uh, look at adding some additional questions that could help them get more information. And once we can get that snowball rolling, I think we'll be in a position to cause some change. Yeah. In the in the two or three minutes we have here, I wanted to turn to you, Nydia, here as a ISU doctoral uh, candidate in psychology. What what interests you most in, in this work um, uh, that that you just um, love to love to investigate? Yes. Yeah, so in psychology and law in particular and in the eyewitness field, um, what interests me was the ability to take basic psychological principles, be that in cognitive psychology or social psychology, and apply them to real-world settings and have real-world impact, um, especially in the field of eyewitness research. Um, I remember coming into this field just shocked at uh, the rate of misidentifications. Um, as Andrew previously mentioned, in 70% of um, wrongful conviction cases, eyewitness uh, evidence has played a role. And so that that is why I'm so passionate about this field. It's it's about the real world impact. Mm -hmm. I wonder if either of you have ever been involved with this firsthand, uh, ever been an eyewitness, ever been a victim of a serious crime. Uh, I, I mean, it would seem to motivate this research anymore, perhaps. Unfortunately. Uh, fortunately, not a victim of a crime. Um, very, very good. Uh, Andrew, in the final minute we have here, perhaps you can talk about wider implications. It seems for me, uh, to me, you know, implications for the innocent project, um, you know, exonerating individuals who've been wrongly convicted. This would be very interesting to an organization like that and, and those who believe in, in those goals. Uh, absolutely. And I mean, the real way to prevent wrongful, the real way to deal with wrongful convictions is to prevent them before they happen. And, you know, right. that's our goal here is if we can increase the potential for police during the investigation stage to detect when someone's innocence, we can present, we can prevent those convictions from happening. Moreover, even being a suspect in a crime has very severe consequences. And so, um, being able to clear those people more quickly is, is going to have co reduce a lot of harm. Cognitive psychologist, assistant professor of psychology at ISU, Andrew Smith, and ISU doctoral candidate in psychology, Nydia Ayala. Ayula, excuse me, Nydia. Thank you both for no coming worries. into our studio. <laughs> Thank you for, so much. After, thanks for having us. Fascinating. Thank you. Coming up after a short break, a conversation with Joni Arnett. She's been giving tours at the Iowa State Capitol since the 1970s, nearly 50 years. And this is Joni's last day before retirement. That's coming up in just a moment. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at UpstreamFM.com. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. I remember my first time at the Iowa State Capitol building vividly. What about you? 
under Iowa's Golden Dome. Uh, my instance was in the 1970s. Uh, my friends and I in the elementary school class, uh, Valley Park School, as a matter of fact, in Cedar Falls, we got in a big yellow bus, uh, traveled what seemed like a very long time, <laughs> taking a field trip to Des Moines to tour this magnificent structure, the centerpiece of our state government. What a memory uh, from, and I have to say, nearly 50 years ago? Oh, my gosh. Joni Arnett has been giving tours also for nearly 50 years, since 1976 when she started working at the Capitol. And for over 20 years, she's been the tour guide supervisor at the Iowa State Capitol. She's now retiring. Joni Arnett joins me now uh, from the Iowa State Capitol. I hear in the background, Joni, are you actually there? I am at the Capitol, yes. Okay, tell us where you are right now so we can get a picture. Well, I'm on the ground floor of the Capitol. Uh, I'm in the tour guide area. Uh, The tour guides are here in the center rotunda on the ground floor, and we share space with the small gift shop that we have here. All right. So I understand that uh, I, I shared my earliest memory of the Capitol, but I think your memory predates mine. How old were you when you first walked into that structure? My first memory of the Capitol, I was probably three or four years old. Uh, my family lived in this area, and I remember coming in here as a small child, and we did that frequently. Uh, it was not unusual for us to visit the Capitol on a weekend. Yeah, what, can you remember what your thoughts were as a four-year-old walking in and seeing all this splendor? Well, honestly, what I really remember is just how large the building was. <laughs> you know, as a small person, I think that that's the the point of the building that that really um, sticks in your memory. Uh, It's a very, very large building. Uh, Most of us have not been in buildings this large. So that's what I remember from those visits. But, you know, through the years I have many, many memories of this building. And I just wanted to mention that when you came for your field trip in 1976, I probably gave you the tour. So... Wow. Wow. We, that's an amazing, it could have been, it could have been very likely. So you started giving tours when, and how old were you? I started giving tours in January of 1976, and I was 19. All right. And you've been giving tours uh, ever since? How do the tours work? Or, I understand when you started, uh, tours offered every hour during the openings, uh, during the opening hours? Uh, That is correct, yes. When I started here, um, I did just tours up to the Dome, and we did that hourly from 10 a.m. until 3 p.m. And then, you know, through the years, I I have learned to do much more than that. Uh, So we uh, still have a regular schedule that we follow in addition to tours that we do for large groups, you know, that have scheduled in advance. Um, And I don't give as many tours now as a supervisor as I used to, uh, but I do still give tours uh, on occasion, uh, you know, especially with special, I shouldn't say special groups, with groups that are looking for a wider range of information. Yeah, because, I mean, it's good work for a 19-year-old when you started. It's a lot of legwork. It's a lot of moving around, a lot of exercise, isn't it? It is, yes. (laughs) It's a very physical job. Yes, it is. Yeah. So, So take us... In our mind's eye for for this uh, radio conversation, take us on a quick walkthrough uh, of a typical tour uh, so that we can sort of picture it with you. 
Okay. Well, first of all, you have to remember that it's a grand old building. Um, and when you enter, that's apparent. Uh, unfortunately, now we enter on the ground floor, which is not as beautiful as the upper levels, uh, but we do move up there quickly when we have groups on tours. So we would be on the first floor. We would be in the rotunda area. Uh, standing in the rotunda on the first floor, you can look north to south, uh, longer than a football field. It's uh, more than 363 feet, and from east to west, it's about 240 feet. Uh, so it's really a very, very large building. And if you look straight up, if you're standing in the center rotunda on the first floor, you can see up into the dome uh, a little more than 200 feet. Now, that's not the same wall that you see from the outside. When you're entering the building, you see that upper portion of the dome. Uh, that view you do not see from the inside. There are two separate walls in the dome. Um, and there's a lot of empty space in between them, so you're missing about, uh, about 60 feet of view when you're standing on the inside of the building. We have a model of the Battleship Iowa on the first floor. Uh, children love to talk about that. Uh, we have a history display case where we can talk about the history of the Capitol, a little bit about the history of our other Capitol buildings. Uh, we have a display of Governor's Spouse's inaugural dress. Uh, we have, of course, the executive offices in this building, Secretary of State, uh, Auditor, Treasurer, and Governor, Lieutenant Governor. Uh, we have the old judicial area, which is now occupied by the House of Representatives, but we still have access to those rooms on tour uh, for the most part, so we can look in the old Supreme Court room and the old Supreme Court consultation room. And then, of course, it's a long walk up that grand staircase to the second floor where you can look into the House of Representatives to the north and the Senate to the south. And don't forget that beautiful law library to the west. That is a very memorable room for most people. Yeah, it's so fascinating to think that you, when you were just starting giving tours, it's likely you gave me a tour as an elementary school child coming from Cedar Falls on a bus. <laughs> but you mentioned the, battle, the model of the battleship Iowa. That stands out in my memory um, as I was just, of course fascinated by that battleship. And the other thing that stands out were the numerous um, si original Civil War flags. Are they still there? They are not here in the Capitol any longer, unfortunately. Uh, that was one of my favorite parts of the building. I love talking about the flags. I love talking about our participation in the Civil War. But we started a battle flag project uh, many years ago because the flags really just needed to be put somewhere where they were, were away from the light, away from the heat. Um, and so we have done that. They're now in the museum. They're in archival storage. And it's sad that we don't get to see them anymore. <laughs> but on the other hand, it's great that we can save them for future generations because they are so much a part of our Iowa history. Right. If you just joined us, uh, Joni Arnett is with me, tour guide supervisor at the Iowa State Capitol. She's been doing uh, been a tour guide supervisor there for over 20 years, been giving tours for nearly 50 years. So uh, we're talking with her, her on the occasion of her uh, retirement uh, soon. Uh, so when you take people on current tours now, what, what seems to thrill visitors the most? You know, I have to tell you, for the most part, it really doesn't change. Uh, visitors are thrilled by the same thing today that they would have been, you know, 47 years ago when I started. Uh, it is just an incredible building. 
if you have been here, you know how beautiful it is. Uh, and the beauty of the building is what captures most people's imagination. Again, I talk about the displays for younger people. That is something that they love. But I have to tell you, a favorite of most people that come in is the gold on the outside of the dome when we talk about that. And you know it's real gold. It's 23 and 3 fourths carats, so it's almost pure. It's incredibly thin, 250 thousandths of an inch thick, so it's thinner than a strand of hair. Um, and they also enjoy walking up to the Whispering Gallery. That is the base of the dome. That's as far up as, uh, as the public is allowed to go. Um, and that is something that we do with every group that comes in. If you're a school group, you have to be fourth grade and above. If you're with your parents, you have to be six and above. Uh, but we do that with just about every tour that goes out. And that is something that people remember. They like walking up that far. Do you remember going up there when you were here? I sure, I sure do. I love that part of it, going up to those heights. It was, it was thrilling. I want to ask you about, since you've mentioned it too, you know, things have changed over nearly 50 years, renovations there. Well, how does it compare uh, the, the, the Capitol building now with uh, when you started in the 1970s giving tours? Well, when I started in the 1970s, I would not have been as proud of this building. It was not really kept up very well. And almost all of the decorative work that we have in the building, the decorative painting uh, on, in every room, which, by the way, there are 109 in all the public hallways, um, all of that had been painted over. So I came to a building that was simply white. There was no decoration here. And in the time that I have been here, restoration painters have been working uh, for more than 40 years to restore all those beautiful designs. So now you come in the building and you see these beautiful, beautiful designs on walls. Many of them uh, include gold leaf in that design. Uh, the ceilings have been restored. It really is a stunning building. Uh, people look at the decoration that we have, and it's very hard to convince them that it's not wallpaper. Uh, we tell people that, you know, it's painted by hand, and I think it's just really hard for people to comprehend. Oftentimes they, they have to touch the walls to reassure themselves that it's not wallpaper, that it's all hand-painted. Yep. Our, our state capital dates back to the late uh, 1800s, and and how unique, tell us a little bit about that, about that and, and how unique having a gold a real gold dome is in the in the country? Well, in the country, we are one of 10. So we are very unique in that. We are one of 10 capitals that has a gold dome. We are the only capital that has five domes. So uh, again, we're, we're, we stand alone in that one. Uh, so the capital building uh, really was designed by individuals who wanted to build a grand, beautiful building. Um, and they wanted to build that not just for the people who were, you know, alive at that point, not people that were just living in the 1880s and 1890s. They wanted to build a building that people would be proud of for hundreds of years to come. Uh, you know, we've only been using it for about 140 years, so we still have a long way to go. <laughs> the people who built the building guaranteed that it would last for a 1,000 years. Yeah. Uh, and you host all kinds of memorable uh, events and groups there. I understand there's was, a, a, in your memory, standing out, a, a reunion of uh, USS Iowa veterans. We mentioned that, that huge model of the battleship Iowa, World War II battleship Iowa, and, and an event there. What, tell us that story. 
Yes, uh, the USS Iowa veterans, the men who had served on the battleship, uh, have a reunion every year. And in this particular year, they decided to have it here in Des Moines, Iowa. And so they were coming to the city, and we were contacted early on, you know, asked if we would do tours and that kind of thing. And then, of course, we started the discussion that we had the model here, the model of the battleship Iowa. At that point in time, we also had a bell off of the the real ship. And um, so we we really developed a, a, a day, a plan, uh, actually, it was more than one day uh, for these gentlemen that were coming in. Uh, it was an amazing project to talk to these sailors who had served on the ship. You know, sailors that had been on the ship as plank holders, they were there when the ship launched in 1942. Sailors that had been serving on the ship uh, when President Roosevelt uh, went to the Tehran Conference. Uh, and sailors that had been on the ship, sadly, when the explosion happened in the 1980s. Um, so, you know, these were all generations, uh, men that had been on the ship during the Korean War, and we had a chance to interview them. We have uh, both oral histories and video histories. Uh, it was just an amazing project that we worked on. Um, so th- these are people th- that, honestly, many of them have remained friends through the years. Uh, these are people that some of the tour guides still stay in contact with. Uh, it was just a great project. But, you know, we have many special events here. You know, governor's conferences, they always do a reception here. Uh, Recently we had the secretaries of state, uh, and then last year we had the attorney generals here. Attorneys general, I want to say that properly. That's the plural of attorney general. Um, And, um, you know, it's just a chance for us to meet, one, people, of course, from all other states, but these are people that primarily work in other capitals. You know, they're very interested in the building. Um, and so you just kind of have this um, this unique camaraderie uh, with people. Uh, it just kind of pulls you together. Uh, those kinds of things are very fun. Um, but, you know, we do World Food Prize here. There's just all kinds of events that we have in the Capitol. And you supervise quite a large staff that gives tours. Uh, how many do uh, at any one time uh, give tours? How many staff do you oversee? Uh, right now, our staff is at 26, so there are three of us that are full-time, um, and of course, I'll, I'll be leaving, so that was intentional, so there are folks that are going to take over my responsibilities, and then um, all the rest are part-time tour guides, and they come in uh, whenever it's convenient for them. Some like to work a lot, some like to work only one day a week, but the thing that we all share is a passion for this building. So we have a a really great staff. Uh, these people are highly trained. Um, so when they go out on tour, they, they know what they're talking about. I understand uh, you were you were fired at one point. That's hard to believe. <laughs> wow, I can't believe you heard that story. Uh, yes, we were. Uh, when I started working here, the tour guides were actually under the executive council. And I don't know if you're familiar with that, but executive council is made up of the governor, you know, the auditor, secretary of state, attorney general. So executive council secretary, his name was Wes Wellman, and that's who our boss was. And then we were moved to the Department of General Services, which was just kind of the general maintenance department for the Capitol complex and um, basically all of state government. And, um, and so we worked under them. 
And at the time, the legislature had cut general services budget. And so the person who was the director of general services decided to cut the tour guides. Um, that was where his budget cut was going to be. And the legislature got wind of that, and they passed a bill and put us under them, and we have worked under the legislature ever since. So Legislative Services Agency is currently the agency that we are under. Uh, that is one of the nonpartisan agencies under the legislature. So we work for basically both the House and Senate. We work for, you know, Republican and Democrat. Yep. Uh, we're one of the few nonpartisan agencies within state government. And any, any people being given a tour, you steer away, and all your guides steer away from uh, politics, don't you? <laughs> yes, we do. Yes, we do. As we like to say, we are the least controversial people in the Capitol. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Joni Arnett, Tour Guide Supervisor uh, at the Iowa State Capitol. Thank you very much. You're retiring. Thank you for your service to our state and your service to me and my elementary school friends back in the 70s. <laughs> Let's just say that, okay? Well, you are, you are very welcome for both. It was a pleasure. So thank you very much. It was nice talking to you. Okay. Joni Arnett speaking to us, as you can hear, from the Iowa State Capitol. Today's program produced by Samantha McIntosh. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.